It's time for all the attitude, all the opinion, all the information, all the debate. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Now, the Leighton Smith Podcast, powered by Newstalk ZB and nzherald.co.nz. Welcome to podcast number 95 for December 16. And guesting in the final podcast for 2020, Oliver Hartwich, Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative. Such a great reaction we had to his uh, podcast appearance earlier in the year, and I thought it appropriate to have a look at the uh, the current scenario and to get Dr. Hartwich's perspective on what next year might bring. We discuss councils, China, World Economic Forum, the ETS, and a bit of education. From the New Zealand Initiative, Dr. Oliver Hartwich, it is great to have you back, and I appreciate your uh, your presence. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to uh, I want to begin by asking you a personal question. You announced recently that you were applying for New Zealand citizenship. Am I wrong in remembering that you will have only New Zealand citizenship? Uh, yes, that is uh, not quite correct. I will retain my German passport as well. Um, but I have applied for New Zealand citizenship. Um, I did that in mid-July, and um, on the New Zealand government's website, um, I was told it would take about five months to process that, so I'm expecting the result any day now. So why did you feel the desire? You expressed an enthusiasm about the country, and I wonder if, well, if you're still as enthusiastic as you were when you applied. Well, I'm committed to New Zealand. Um, There are a few reasons. First of all, I've been here for, well, eight and a half years now, and I intend to stay here. So I think it is time to also document that commitment to the country. The second reason is um, our son. He was born in Wellington. He actually has um, three passports because my wife's Australian. So he travels on an Australian, a German and a New Zealand passport. Well, when I say travel, not so much these days, of course. So I would like to share that citizenship with my son. And um, the third reason is entirely practical. I I think um, when you're living here, you should have um, that citizenship. It gives you the potential option even to um, work politically. It makes travel between Australia and New Zealand easier in normal times because you can use the right queue. Um, And for all of these different reasons, and an emotional reason, because I think when you live in a country, you should become part of it. Um, I would like to have that. It doesn't actually change much for me practically because as a permanent resident in New Zealand, you can already vote. Um, You have practically all the rights you want. You can even leave the country for years and come back and still have a right to reside here. So it is not really a practical thing so much as an emotional step. Do you think it's right that that any country, but New Zealand in this situation, uh, allows people to vote who Either, I'll give you two, two choices, either aren't citizens but are permanent residents or people who are, who are just living here. Yeah, I found that strange, actually, because I think New Zealand is only one of a handful of countries doing that. I mean, in Germany, you can live as a foreigner in Germany for decades and you still wouldn't be allowed to vote. And in New Zealand, basically, the moment you arrive and you get your permanent resident visa, you're in. Um, I found that a bit strange and I'm, I'm torn on that question. I'm not sure whether that's the right thing to do. On the one hand, I think a bit more of a commitment to the country is probably a good thing before you start voting. On the other, I pay tax in New Zealand, um, quite a bit actually. So I think if Parliament is the place that decides on what to do with my taxes, then I should probably also have a say in that uh, after some time. But I admit, I'm, I'm torn. I was surprised that it's handled like that here. 
So you mentioned your seven-year-old son, and uh, we have been discussing on the podcast uh, of late education in New Zealand and its failings. How do you feel about um, how do you feel about the education system as as it, it uh, connects with your son? Well, I feel gravely concerned about education in New Zealand. And last week we got um, new data from a, an international mathematics and science comparison, showing that once again we are falling further behind our international peers. So when I'm thinking of um, our son, he's now seven years old, he has just finished year three at school, um, I'm concerned. And um, I'm concerned also because I know, of course, what kind of education I had when I went to school in Germany. And I keep comparing. And um, the comparison, unfortunately, doesn't look too good at the moment. So I had um, fantastic teachers. I have um, attended public schools, by the way, state schools in Germany, and not in the flashiest part of Germany, so in an old industrial region in West Germany. That's where I went to school. But my teachers were first class. I had an extremely good primary school teacher for four years. And then when I got to grammar school, I basically entered a mini university. So about a third of my teachers had PhDs. I had um, Dr. Kamp in biology and Dr. Blumer in chemistry and Dr. Sherman in social sciences and Dr. Geschwinder in religious education. So it was like a mini university and it was extremely high quality education. I'm thinking of my physics and mathematics teacher, Dr. Müller. He joined us from IBM where he worked before. And um, in year six, he explained um, Einstein's relativity theory to us and made us calculate the wavelength of laser light and introduced us to the newest invention at the Fraunhofer Institute, a simultaneous spectrometer. And he found that really interesting. We, was, we were in year six, we were 12 year olds. So that kind of education, I don't think is going to happen for our son when he is 12. I had Latin from year five. I had Latin for five and a half years. I had um, English then from year seven um, as my second foreign language. And towards the end of my English um, A-level courses, um, we read Shakespeare, we read um, Isaac Asimov, we read John Steinbeck, we followed British politics, we discussed, discussed all of this in English. And um, I had a really well-rounded education also in music. We had fantastic music teachers at our school. We had a, a, a big band at our school. We, had, um, we were introduced to classical music. We interpreted classical music. It was such a rich and deep education with a highly qualified um, collegium of teachers, um, I, I don't think our son will experience that kind of education here, and that makes me sad. The education that you got was inherited from previous generations, and it was sustained, and the, and the population was endorsing it. I'm increasingly getting the impression that that's not the case. Yes, the education I got was inherited um, because it stands in a long tradition of the German education system. It wasn't inherited personally, by the way, I should say, because my family, well, I was the first to go to grammar school and the first to go to university. My dad was a policeman and my mom um, was a housewife. And um, so it was quite um, an eye-opening experience then coming from this kind of background into that grammar school. But um, the inheritance that you mentioned is, of course, the inheritance of the German education system, which goes back to Wilhelm von Humboldt. So um, he was the education minister in the state of Prussia in um, the early 19th century, only for about a year, by the way. But what he did was he opened the education system to people from all sorts of backgrounds. Before that, of course, education, a decent education, was the privilege of the aristocracy, of the upper classes. 
And Willem von Humboldt made sure that the education system delivered a decent basic education to every child, regardless of background, in the state of Prussia. He also established the first university in Berlin, still named after him, Humboldt University. So this ideal of Humboldtian education was to form the whole personality. Um, Humboldt in his writings, by the way, made it very clear it is not about employability because he says, actually, once you're educated, you can learn any trade easily later on in life, but we're not preparing you specifically for a trade. The purpose of education, according to Humboldt, was to form personalities, let people discover what they're good at and introduce them to the widest range of um, subjects that you can imagine. And it was very shaped, of course, by also ancient Greek education ideals. And that basically was the, the tradition in which I went to school. And it was later opened up by social democrats in the 1960s and 70s, who then wanted to make it even easier for uh, students from middle class, working class backgrounds to attend grammar school. And um, I was probably the beneficiary of that. Well, there, there is an argument that you were living and being educated in Europe, which is a, which is a contained area um, and covers all the, all the studies that you did, whereas this is the other side of the world, down in the South Pacific. Uh, therefore, there, there is a, a different approach to education because we're, we're learning, or kids are learning or being taught or should about their local environment rather than, uh, rather than anywhere else. Would that be applicable? There is some truth to that, um, and, and some of it is natural. So when I went to school, our school excursions, um, for example, went to Cologne. Cologne was just about 100 kilometers away from where I lived, and Cologne was, of course, originally a Roman settlement, so we could see the Roman excavations there. We had a year 12 excursion then for a week to Rome, and uh, we had le lectures on Roman life at the Colosseum. So if you're doing that in New Zealand, of course, that wouldn't be practicable. And of course, you need to have local knowledge. So of course, in the New Zealand context, you would want to learn about Maori culture and custom, because that is part of the country. I totally get that. At the same time, I think a lot of the things that I learned at um, school should be possible to um, convey in a New Zealand context as well. Um, so learning the great works of literature in the English language, when English is the language of the country, I think should be a given in New Zealand context. And actually properly learning foreign languages, I think is also a great benefit to any student, regardless of where on earth that is. And by the way, it can be any foreign language. It doesn't have to be a European language. Let New Zealand students learn Chinese or any other Asian language for that matter, or let them learn Tereo. I think the benefit of language learning we know from neuroscience is actually that it forms the brain. It actually activates parts of the brain that um, will then be useful for other things as well. There are some studies, for example, that show that once you learn a foreign language, you will be ironically better at maths as well. So I think um, just because we have a relatively remote geographic location in New Zealand doesn't mean that we cannot teach proper subject knowledge and a wide array of knowledge that you would also be found taught in, say, Europe or North America. That's a very good appraisal. Western civilization, as you've just described through your education, Western civilization is under threat, is it not? How badly? I think the term itself is loaded. Um, it is often misunderstood. Um, Western civilization, of course, is itself the product of different civilizations. I mean, if you're going through history, you can see that um, the first um, alphabet, for example, comes from um, the Middle East. The Phoenicians basically developed that. 
you can see that our numeral system, our mathematics, is heavily influenced by Arabs and Arab mathematicians. You can see all sorts of scientific advances that were undertaken in, in China, in India, in Arabia, um, that had an influence on culture. So I think Western civilization is a bit of a misnomer. Western civilization includes all sorts of different cultural influences that were then developed predominantly in, in Europe and North America, but they are not inherently um, limited to these continents. It's the body of knowledge. It's the body of knowledge that humankind has developed over millennia. And I think as such, it is under threat. And I, I give one example where I think it is under threat, um, the scientific method. Um, the scientific method is one of the greatest achievements, I think, of our civilization, finding out things. And again, you can trace this back to ancient Greece and ancient Greek philosophers trying to understand natural phenomena. And that was developed then, of course, in the Enlightenment. That was developed by people like um, René Descartes, um, just thinking about thinking, thinking about philosophy. Now, we have come today to a position where we are often discarding the scientific method, where we have replaced rational inquiry with emotional statements, with feelings, and, and where we are withdrawing from scientific testing of propositions. And it is that that I find um, um, regrettable and, and sad because I think we are moving away from those things that actually drove our culture and the world's culture for millennia. Well, that gives me the opportunity to ask you your, your thoughts on uh, your current thoughts on the ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme. Well, yes. Um, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm um, qualified as an, an economist and um, I've got a law degree as well. I do not um, think I can evaluate the science behind climate change, but I can take it as a given that um, we now have a commitment to reduce our net carbon emissions to zero over the next decades. And this, I think, is where the economics then kicks in. So the question for economists like myself should be, okay, so we've got this political commitment. Um, we are not qualified to discuss the science, but what we can do is we can um, discuss the economics. We can discuss how we can actually achieve this target in the most efficient way. And um, I studied environmental economics when I went to university in Germany in the 90s. And um, the economic science is relatively clear on this one. When you deal with carbon emissions, you basically have two options. You can apply a carbon tax and um, basically try to tax these emissions out of existence, or you can choose the path of an emissions trading scheme. And that is the path that New Zealand has taken. That was a scheme introduced under the government of Helen Clark by then climate change minister David Parker. It was um, continued um, over the years um, under different ministers from um, the national government and it was perfected, I would say, by James Shaw in the last um, term. Because the one thing that was still missing from the original ETS was a hard cap. Emissions trading schemes are known as cap and trade systems. Um, the cap means you define in advance how many tons of carbon dioxide you're going to emit in any given year. And the trade component of that means that you then trade um, emission certificates. And um, so after um, James Shaw introduced the cap in June uh, 2020, we had perhaps the world's best emissions trading scheme. And the way it works is that um, you issue certificates for the whole economy. You say, this is what we're going to emit next year. And then you leave it to polluters to define where they're going to cut emissions. The interesting thing there is that the system is remarkably efficient because you will 
um, lead to emissions reductions in industries where they can achieve these reductions in emissions in the most effect, cost-effective way. And they can trade with each other so the market will actually find out where we're going to cut emissions. The problem then comes that when politicians are not satisfied with the system they have just established and start introducing all sorts of new regulations on top of that. And we have seen a lot of that recently. So, for example, we have a new government fund worth about $70 million to help companies move away from coal um, boilers to more energy efficient and carbon efficient uh, forms. The problem is, of course, this will only mean that we will reduce the emission certificates that these companies will need because the total emissions won't change. It is their certificates that will be freed up and then be used by somebody else because we had in the first step defined how much we are going to emit as a country next year. Now, this mechanism and the um, design features of that mechanism are well known to economists. So I first heard about this actually in the early 2000s when the advisory council to the German economics ministry said, okay, once you've got an ETS, forget about any other measure. Don't sponsor, subsidize electric vehicles, for example. Don't have renewable feed-in tariffs. Don't have renewable targets because the ETS takes care of that. It's covered. We then had um, a statement from the German Monopolies Commission, from the UK um, electricity regulator Ofgem, and then even in 2014, um, a statement in a report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, so the UN's top body on climate policy, saying you cannot logically combine an emissions trading scheme with any other environmental policies because the net effect will be zero. And yet that is exactly what we're doing in New Zealand. Why are we doing it then? We are doing it because um, my suspicion is that politicians want to be seen as doing something. An emissions trading scheme, efficient as it is, is invisible. You cannot see the operations of that system. It just works. Whereas politicians, of course, they want to cut ribbons. They want to subsidize stuff. If you've got an EV, an electric vehicle in your driveway, that is very tangible and you can subsidize it and people will be grateful to politicians paying the subsidy, except it doesn't do anything because any emissions certificate we are replacing with a new electric vehicle will just be used by someone else. The total emissions don't change. Politicians do this because they want to be seen as doing something. And perhaps they're also doing it because even though they have introduced the world's most sophisticated emissions trading scheme, they still don't know how it works. And that's the great irony. And I'm really afraid that the next year when we see the um, carbon budgets introduced by the Climate Change Commission, um, they will propose a lot of policies, a lot of subsidies that will yield a precisely zero gram effect on the total emissions New Zealand will emit because we have already predefined the total outcome. Then tell me this, you've introduced things which would struggle to make it into the, uh, into the media these days, and you've got, a, you've got a, a vast array, far more than people realise, of scientists in, involved in the climate who, who are saying the same thing, but they, they will not be reported, simply because there is this now, this closed mind by the media and I'm talking about um, most of the newspapers in this country. I'm talking about television channels and radio stations. And so the, the news that you or the information that you just expressed and its extensions aren't heard by your average punter, by your average citizen anymore. How bad is that? Oh, it is a constant challenge for us economists um, um, because it usually takes a little bit longer to explain, explain um, economic circumstances and economic laws 
the, the system I just described now, um, how an ETS works and how you cannot combine an ETS with other climate change policies, that takes about five minutes to explain. Um, and it is a bit um, counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive that when you're subsidizing electric vehicles, for example, or when you're helping companies to move to more climate-friendly uh, um, technologies, that you're not yielding any result on carbon emissions. Um, you have to explain this first, but it takes a while. And most journalists, I think, don't have the time. Um, and, and you certainly can't do this in a 30-second statement somewhere. I think it takes five or 10 minutes to, to, to understand how the system works. And once you do that, everything else will drive you crazy because there are still so many people out there, of course, who have never thought about this and are doing this probably with the best intentions without realizing that what they're doing is completely futile. Leads me on to um, another organization, the World Economic Forum, the WEF, and their so-called Great Reset. What comments might you have to make about it? Well, I'm concerned about um, phrases, slogans like the Great Reset, because it suggests to me that um, these organizations want to move us to a completely different economic system, when in fact the system that we already have, um, imperfectly um, organized as it is, has actually produced great results. Um, all um, global economic indicators, um, social indicators, environmental indicators actually point to the efficiency of um, um, free market economy of delivering results. Um, we are very good at reducing um, poverty, for example, global poverty with free markets, with trade, with free trade. Um, there is no empirical discussion really about um, the ability of this current economic system to deliver results that people want, even when it comes to the environment. And I believe we talked about this last time we talked on your podcast. Um, there are environmental Kuznets curves, and that's why we call them in economics. And it means that initially when you start producing, when an economy grows, you record some environmental degradation. But as the economy grows beyond that, you're actually producing so much wealth that you can deal with it and actually you yield better outcomes, better environmental outcomes with a growing economy. I think all of this has been extremely well documented in economics. And yet the World Economic Forum now pretends as if none of this evidence exists. Instead, they want to lead us towards a different economic system, um, a system where we will have more state control, less markets, less trade, less property rights. And from everything we know in um, empirical economics, this is a disaster because um, this won't work and it will yield perverse outcomes and quite the opposite of what the people from the World Economic Forum probably expect. And what chance do you think they have of making progress? Well, they've got a good chance because the um, zeitgeist, if you like that word, seems to be going in the direction of increased government intervention and government control. Um, the pendulum has swung, as it often does in economics and in, in politics. We can never take anything for granted once and for all, as Friedrich Hayek told us, I think, 70 years ago. So if you look at it in historical terms, we had a period after 1945 which saw a rise of the state, a rise of Keynesianism globally. Um, and of course, we still had the Soviet Union and its allies around. Um, there was this famous quote in the early 1970s, Richard Nixon telling us that we were all Keynesians now. And that Keynesian consensus unraveled then in the late 1970s and 1980s, um, not least through politicians like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, Bob Hawke and Roger Douglas. And so, especially then after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism, 
we had some, what was then called the Washington Consensus, so a much more liberal um, view of economics. Um, we had the um, blossoming of globalization. And that again came to an end then in the GFC and the last 10 years have seen this massive swing towards government action once again, now accelerated by COVID-19. And so we're now in this swing away from markets, away from private property rights and back to governments. And um, if history is any guidance, um, we can expect this to last for the next 20, 10, 20 years until another crisis comes along and makes us rethink. And then we're probably swinging back to some more free market inspired reforms again. It is um, quite sad, actually, from an economics perspective to observe these swings, because actually we have a lot of learnings, a lot of empirical knowledge of what actually works, what doesn't work. Um, and yet these political swings are almost irrespective of that. Um, I think actually the direction in which we're traveling now is dangerous because it really undermines the foundations upon which societies typically build prosperity. Well, there's so many tangents I can draw on from, uh, from that last statement of yours. Let me begin with the fact that um, I, wrote a, I wrote a column in the Herald early this year where I made a joke, what was intended to be humorous, um, and it involved um, modern monetary theory. And a, um, uh, it was a woman, not that that matters, wrote a letter to the paper and said, what's wrong with trying new things? That left me gobsmacked because um, patently it was written with, without any, any knowledge of, of some basics, some of which you've touched on today. So the question is... Whose fault is it that we're in this position? You talk about uh, about politicians wanting to be seen to do things, uh, and so they do things that have uh, that have a um, a reverse effect rather than the intended effect. So whose fault is it? Is it the politicians' fault, or is it the population's fault for not taking the time to understand some things? And I suppose we'd uh, we'd have to throw an education here again, but that's the politicians' uh, responsibility in the main. So whose fault is it? Politicians who, who are trying to be seen to do things or the population who doesn't understand anything about it or very little? Oh, I think it's basically all of the above plus another group and the other group are economists. So my profession. Um, I think we have to take a lot of the blame for these developments ourselves. Um, the problem with economics that I see is that the dis discipline has become overly technical over the last decades, overly ma mathematical. I mean, some of the math mathematics, of course, is necessary in economics, but previous generations of economists um, were always able to communicate quite effectively with the public, with the wider public, explain their ideas. Nowadays, it seems to me that um, economics happens mainly in ivory towers, where um, economists write papers for themselves, publish them in obscure journals. You can't even understand the abstracts if you're not an economist yourself. And they're not engaging. They're not explaining their ideas. And so um, the only task for the economist nowadays in academia has become to collect his um, publishing brownie points because that's how you get tenure. You don't get any brownie points in our university system for engaging with the public, writing an op-ed, delivering a public lecture. But you have to write these papers that then get published in journals that nobody reads. And I think that's a problem. It's a real problem because um, while these economists may be doing good work and, and interesting papers for themselves and for their peers, they actually have a duty to inform public debates, I believe. And they're not fulfilling that duty because there are no incentives for them to do so. 
whereas previous generations of economists were often very engaged with the public. I mean, think of um, um, Milton Friedman producing a TV documentary series in the 1970s, free to choose and explaining to a wide lay audience how markets work in a very effective way. Or think of um, Friedrich Hayek doing the same. Think of other economists working in think tanks and um, actually trying to explain basic economics to the public. We haven't seen enough of that in the last 10, 20 years. So the only economics books that you read nowadays for a lay audience are things like Freakonomics. And that's very interesting. That's quite entertaining. And I've read them myself. And it's, that's, that's fine. But what's missing is actually someone to really explain basic economics to the public. And I think that could be a fun task because economics is interesting. It is, I think, perhaps the most powerful social science tool that we have. It shouldn't stand in isolation, by the way. I think we need all the other social sciences too. And you cannot be a good economist if you're only an economist, as Hayek once again said. But I think it is worth explaining how markets work. It is worth explaining um, what comparative advantage means, why, why trade is such a good thing, um, what property rights do, um, what we actually mean when we talk about external effects in environmental policy. Most people have never heard the term, but it's really important. How monetary policy works, why sound money is such an important um, feature of a market economy. And to the degree that the public actually misses out on basic economics, it makes it easier for politicians to get away with nonsense. And also it means that if the public doesn't know how it's going, what is going on, that makes it even harder for journalists who understand what's going on to even explain these things because um, the public is ignorant. So I think we all have to take a lot of the blame for what's going on. And I wouldn't even exclude economics from their blame. I studied economics in the last two years of high school, and I did a couple of years of um, selected economics um, at university. And my favourite topic was um, was comparative economic systems, mm-hmm. um, uh, capitalism v communism, and it encaptured me. I don't know why, but it did. But I wonder now whether there are whether there is the desire for for economics to be pushed as a subject, um, even just basic economics should be should be almost well virtually compulsory should be included in in other things. But even when when you get to university now, um, and you would you would be well aware of this, there is a strong lean to the left right through the Western world, and so socialism gets promoted and capitalism tends to get um, criticised. Um, not so much, I would say, in economics faculties. Um, economics faculties are still more balanced um, than other faculties, especially in the humanities. What I would say, though, is um, that what I encountered when I studied economics, and I didn't actually like economics when I studied it, believe it or not, it was too far removed from the real world. It was um, the typical kind of neoclassical economics taught nowadays, which can be quite mathematical and a little bit removed from everyday um, realities. I remember one of my classes I took um, was on economic growth theory, and we spent half a year modeling different production functions for the economy based on two or three variables. So it's labor, capital, and technological progress. And then basically we spent endless hours just modeling these production functions. And I thought to myself, actually, if it's that easy to model and um, design economic growth, why did the Soviet Union fail? There must be something else. And of course, there is something else. There's institutional economics that can explain that. Um, There are property rights theories. Um, I think that there are much better 
ways to explain why some economies grow than others, than these uh, this artificial modeling of production functions. And that is why I said um, I think economics also got it wrong because economics doesn't engage with the real world. Economics, by the way, has become an much a much poorer discipline in recent decades for two reasons. In economics departments these days, we don't teach history of economic thought again anymore. Um, and if you don't know the history of your subject, you are bound to make repay, uh, make mistakes and repeat mistakes that previous generations of economists have made, which have now been corrected. So I think um, for economists um, going to university, what I would recommend is to take some classes in the history of economic thought. It's really important. In the same way, you need to also know the history of economics um, and, and, and the history of the economy. So economic history. Um, because, again, you can take a lot of inspiration and a lot of um, learning from just comparing different periods um, in history. You mentioned uh, the comparison of the systems, the Soviet Union against the West, basically, at the time. Um, we can definitely learn our lessons from that. And again, it's, it's one of those subjects that we don't really teach our young economic students anymore. And I think it's a mistake because um, we need to know our past and we need to know the history of our subject to understand um, the world around us. Speaking of the world around us, in the Australian media today, there is a big story and there are a number of uh, uh, sub-stories, uh, but they're all attached. Let me quote you briefly from one. The Chinese Communist Party has infiltrated the Australian, British and US consulates in Shanghai with a government-run recruitment agency placing advisors into Western embassies for more than a decade. A leak of official membership for uh, records, the first in the world, has exposed details of 1.95 million CCP members, including their position, birth date and ethnicity, after being extracted from a Shanghai server by whistleblowers. Uh, an investigation by the Australian newspaper has found that at least 10 consulates in Shanghai have uh, CCP members employed as senior political and government affairs specialists, clerks, economic advisors and executive assistants. One more. Chinese Communist Party ghosts in the global machine. Global companies that hold billions of dollars worth of sensitive defence contracts in Australia and the US along with companies developing coronavirus vaccines, have hundreds of Chinese Communist Party members in their employ, an investigation has revealed. Just giving you an example, uh, the list has revealed many major companies from manufacturing giants, Boeing and Volkswagen, to financial services firms, including HSBC and ANZ. Not only employ CCP members, but also have branches embedded within their Chinese operations. How serious is that? It is serious. Um, Almost a rhetorical is, question. Yes. Uh, well, it is serious, but it is not surprising. This is how countries behave. Um, I mean, every country is engaged in some sort of um, intelligence, monitoring, espionage. Um, and especially, of course, authoritarian countries are engaged in this. And especially countries of the size of China. Um, so not, none of this should come as a surprise. Um, China, of course, wants to have an influence on um, other countries. They have struggled over the last decades to gain this influence based on soft power because um, there still is not much Chinese soft power around. Um, we still don't listen to Chinese music in the West. Um, there, there are no Chinese movies, for example, in our cinemas. I mean, a country like Britain, for example, which is uh, much smaller than China, has a much 
larger influence on um, global affairs through its soft power, through its pop music, through its movies, through its tele television programs than this vast country of China. So China has failed actually to influence us in that way and uh, convey a more positive image of itself through soft power. And so, of course, because soft power hasn't worked, they're going through other means and they're going through the means of a country um, with an authoritarian regime. And that's what you would expect. And um, it has never been different. And in fact, maybe the reason why I'm not so surprised about this is because of my personal background. I mentioned earlier that I, um, of course, come from Germany and my father was a policeman. Well, I remember one story. Um, he attended a course for um, police officers at a police school in Münster in West Germany. And that was also attended by a colleague from West Berlin. Remember that... Um, West Berlin was part of West Germany, but it was, of course, within the territory of um, the East German communist regime. Uh -huh. So this colleague set the final exam at the police school and then drove home to West Berlin. And by the time he reached the German-German border, he was stopped by the German um, East German police. They looked at his passport, just quickly checked their computer and said, congratulations, you passed your exam at the police school. <laughs> <laughs> So um, th that just demonstrated how far the infiltration of the East German Secret Service went in West Germany. So basically, they were everywhere, they knew everything, and it was extremely well known um, how well connected the Stasi was, even in West Germany, not just in East Germany. And so when I hear stories about the Chinese um, um, regime behaving in that way, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, if East Germany, tiny East Germany with 16 million people could behave in that way, then China with its, what is it now, 1.3 billion people and a similar kind of regime would probably behave in the same way. So should we just surrender? <laughs> no, we shouldn't surrender. Of course not. Um, I think what I'm saying is here, we should actually expect um, these operations and we should prepare um, if, if you know that the other side behaves in that way, you take precautions and you, you, you try to protect your systems um, as well as you can. You will never be able to completely rule it out, but you have to be vigilant. 2020 has been a terrible year, more so for some people than others. What do you see ahead in the next 12 months? Whew. Next year is difficult to predict um, because there is a chance that this pandemic will still be with us for some time, despite the vaccine. The vaccine will take some time to roll out. Um, what is also difficult to predict is how bad the economic implications are going to be in the next few months. I was um, moderately optimistic a few months ago that Europe, for example, would be spared another um, period of lockdown because actually at the time, there were um, both French and German politicians saying, actually, we learned the lesson from the first lockdown and the lesson was that lockdown doesn't really work. And now we're back into lockdown. Um, Angela Merkel just announced an, another lockdown, uh, hard lockdown for this week until mid-January. And that will be enormously economically costly uh, coming in the pre-Christmas period, shutting down retail, for example. So the economic implications, I think, are still going to be with us for a long time. We will also then see whether this is not testing, for example, the um, euro system to destruction, and especially for countries like Italy. So I'm, I'm quite concerned and pessimistic about um, the macroeconomic implications. I'm also concerned about just the general trend of monetary policy around the world. You mentioned modern monetary theory earlier. Um, well, first of all, there's nothing modern about it. We've been there before. There's nothing monetary really about it because it's basically fiscal spending they're talking about. And there's nothing much theory about it either because it's just politics, basically. 
But I'm concerned about all of that because I think it has the potential to really wreck our currencies around the world and, and make the eventual recovery so much harder. So 2021, a fragile year, um, a year which might surprise us. Maybe we get some sort of recovery at, at some stage, but I think there are still enough risks on the downside. One last question. Housing in New Zealand. There apparently still is a shortage, a major one. Uh, is there any way of dealing with it successfully? Yes, um, absolutely. You, you can deal with the housing crisis that is caused by um, low and inflexible supply. In, in fact, I mean, that's one of the issues that um, we at the uh, New Zealand Initiative have been working on for eight years now. And we have de developed quite a few proposals on how to unclog the housing market and how to make it work properly. The basic problem I, I see for housing policy, both here and also in Australia, for example, is that we are focusing too much on the demand side. So whenever it comes to housing affordability, you will always find politicians who have quick fixes on the demand side. So subsidies for first-time buyers or capital gains taxes, or maybe you could unclock, uh, un unlock um, uh, Australian super to pass on to first-time buyers. Um, so these are the kinds of policies being discussed. The real solution for the housing market, I believe, lies on the supply side. So we need to make sure that the market can supply the houses that uh, the country needs. That means we need planning reform, um, but that's hard to get. But it could also mean that we just need better incentives for councils to build. My biggest frustration is actually that we see this um, dichotomy between central and local government. You know, when it comes to development, we are asking local government to please pay for the infrastructure, so build the roads, connect houses to water infrastructure, and then on top of that, deal with the neighbors who typically don't want development in the neighborhood, you know, the NIMBYs, mm. uh, not our backyard, or the, um, the nodes, not over there either, or the bananas built absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. Mm. Um, but when it comes to this development, then um, the taxes out of it, the GST, the income tax, the corporate taxes, they go to Wellington, central government. And so we leave local government with the financial and political costs of development and Wellington central government gets all the upsides of development. And then afterwards, we're surprised that Wellington and councils don't see eye to eye on development. So I think the way to change that is to make sure that local government has financial incentives when it comes to development so they can keep some of the upsides that would be able would enable them to deal with the NIMBYs, the nodes, the bananas that would enable them to build the infrastructure that's really costly for new development. And that would probably solve a housing crisis because that's how countries that have kept their housing market stable over long periods of time have done it. Uh, you can't do it without competent councils, though. And at the moment, they seem to be in very short supply. On that, um, I have to defend councils a little bit here. The councils are behaving rationally. There is nothing in it from development for them. And even if you had totally incompetent councils, councillors, mayors, planners, it is especially in these circumstances that you would want to incentivize them because once they are incentivized for development, they will make development happen. Especially for incompetent councils, you need incentives. I suppose when I said that, I was referring as much or even more to the spending that councils undertake on the basis mm -hmm. that they have a ready, a ready supply of cash. And uh, you, you only have to look at Auckland to see the example mm -hmm. that I'm referring to. You know, promises of 2.5%, and then it goes to 3.5% rates, rates increases. And now we want to try a 5% rate increase for a year, knowing full well that there is little chance of it being reduced um, after that. 
simply because of the overreach of uh, councils in the first place? I would like to have your rates increases because in Wellington we're looking at above 20% for next year. Move. Oh, God. Yeah. No, I mean, basically, we still have to fix the incentives problem. Um, I've been arguing for a long time in New Zealand that I think we've got the wrong setup between central and local government. This country is way too centralized and it doesn't work. Well, I'm inclined to agree with you, and I have thought that way for a long time, but I'm, I'm reconsidering based on the what I perceive as incompetence of those involved in councils. There is no, there is no chance of getting someone of, shall we say, stature and competence into the mayoralty of, of Auckland any time in the foreseeable future. But that's the function of the system. I mean, let's talk about Auckland. I mean, Auckland, um, you had Rodney Hyde on your programme recently, that was his biggest mistake. Um, he actually centralised it further and made it unworkable. Yep. The other problem is, of course, um, we have a local government system where councils are not really able to do their jobs properly because central government is always going to call the shots in the end. So why would anyone go for the Auckland mayoralty if um, he or she knows that actually it's going to be a very thankless task dealing with all of that? In other countries in which local government is um, more in, or more um, independent and um, has greater powers over its own affairs, it is far easier to attract decent, well-qualified people into local government because they know they can make a difference. Um, but I agree, uh, under the current system, you would have to be extremely courageous to go for a local government career in New Zealand. Oliver, been a pleasure talking with you again. May I wish you and your family Merry Christmas and may 2021 be a happier year than 2020 might have been. Thank you very much, Leighton, and the same to you. Mm-hmm.